Dotnet Rocks episode 917, with guests James Lewis and Matt Collinge. Recorded live Thursday, September 26th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And by Franklin's.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Let the dogs out. <laughs> wow, what wow. a crowd. Amazing. This is great. Where are we? We're in Manchester. You know, Adventures just like this everywhere, I guess. It is, am I wrong, or is Manchester like the music capital of the UK? You had more great bands come out of here, especially like in the 80s. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, name some Sex Pistols? <laughs> yeah. Smiths, yes. right? Yeah. Morrissey. New order. Right. New Oasis. Order. New Order. Oasis. Yeah, never heard of them. And we're, yes, <laughs> and we're in the Ruby Lounge. We're actually Lounge. in a, a, a music set. That's right, we're space. in a music uh, venue. All right, you ready? Let's get started with Better No Framework. Awesome. Roll that music. I love these bloody guys. That's awesome. Awesome. <laughs> okay, I'll applaud you guys. That was awesome. Well done. Okay, I do not have a piece of a framework, but I do have a website, and it's quite unique. Okay, I am ready. Show it to me. It's a programming drinking game. Oh no! It's called GetDrunk.com. <laughs> Wow, this is a real what site. What the f*** is this? <laughs> I'm reading the website. Get Drunk, a damn fun coding game where you, the developer, takes part in a drinking game of skill created by yours truly while coding and drinking. Is this for me? Probably not. You seem like a f***ing sissy who does not enjoy an amazing fun <laughs> drinking game based on getting drunk every time you run a get command. Part three, how the f*** do I play? <laughs> All right, let's skip the other stuff in single-player mode. Rule number one, you get commit, you commit to a drink. Simple. Simple. Rule number two, you get push, you fucking drink two. <laughs> Rule number three, you get branch, you drink, ask yourself if the branch was justifiable, and then drink again. <laughs> I knew you'd like this. <laughs> Rule number four. You get clone. You chug your drink. You unoriginal copying lazy piece of shit. <laughs> Rule number five. You get checkout. You get a pass this round for acknowledging good get practice. Nice. Yeah. Rule number six. You get revert. 
you fucking close up shop and do a shot. We all knew that you were not that good. <laughs> Rule number seven, you get pull. Yo, bro, seriously, what the fuck happened at this stage in the game? Since I don't know you, and obviously you don't either, fucking chug. <laughs> and it goes on from there, and it gets worse, I would say. <laughs> Getdrunk.com, that's what I got. Clearly, the multiplayer game is worse. It's worse. Multiplayer game. Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 774, and that's the one we did with Steve Bolin, where he's talking about the evolution of the architect. Right. Uh, so he's got a couple of architect types in the room today, and this comment comes from Mike Grasso. He says, hi, guys. Great show, as always. The topic of professional accreditation for programmers is one that keeps popping up from time to time with friends and colleagues, and it was certainly something we talked about with Steve in that time, too. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I have always argued that professional licenses are really only necessary for those who directly advise clients and who are legally responsible for any damages which may occur from services provided. Most developers fall under the domain of their employers and are protected from direct litigation. I personally don't think that that is worth giving up for the satisfaction of putting, quote, professional developer on a business card. Mm. Uh, uh, Mike, I don't necessarily agree. I think there's more to it than that. Generally, as a consultant, coming from an outside uh, from an outside role, in theory, I would be exposed to litigation. I have errors and omissions assurance, and most of the time, I have a work agreement as well, which pretty much limits my liability. The amount of money you've paid me. So even now, even though I took out a million dollars worth of your gear, you know, here's my check back. That's all I have to pay. And same goes for EULAs. I mean, the big problem with a EULA is that it says this piece of software that you're buying, if it should ruin your life, we'll pay you back the money you spent on the software, not the damage it's done. Right. Read that carefully. Well, yeah. But it also gets back to the truth of the matter, which is as long as we're obviating the responsibility for what our software is capable of doing, both positive and negative, we're not professionals. Professionals own what they've done. Right. And it really means there needs to be an organization back there who's ultimately liable. Right, our equivalent of the medical association or the engineers group or any of those things. Somebody that's on the hook for it, and we haven't done that. Deep, huh? Yeah. It may not be getdrunk.com. No, it's not, but it's, <laughs> it's important. Now I wish I had made up a drinking game based on that. <laughs> so, Mike, I may not agree with you, but I'm certainly going to send you a .NET Rocks mug. So a mug's on its way to you, and if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We make them for Android, iOS, Windows 8, and WinPhone 7 and 8, and those apps were made by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you an app? You just go to diatomenterprises.com. I'd love that every time you get a threatening email from your client, you drink. There's a game right there. <laughs> and before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs, industry experts, and people who appear on this show. They release over 40 new courses every month now, and they still offer a 10-day free trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. A wide range of topics, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let us introduce our guests. First, James Lewis is Principal Consultant for ThoughtWorks, based in the UK. He studied astrophysics in the 90s, but got sick of programming in Fortran. 14 years of DBA, Java development, software design, and software architecture later, he believes that writing software is the easy part of the problem. Most of the time, it's about getting people thinking right. 
James is passionate about XP practices, seeding cultural change, and applying what he's learned to deploying maintainable, robust, and scalable software into production on time and budget. And he brought with him a guest uh, who's going to introduce himself. But welcome, James. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. <laughs> And uh, Matt, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi. Yeah, I'm uh, Matt Collins. I head up the architecture function at Compare the Market, and uh, James is currently working with us. So James asked us if he could bring uh, one of his customers, uh, and obviously he's got some stories to share from the real world. <laughs> so that uh, sounded great for us, and I'm sure to you guys too. So, so welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. ThoughtWorks is uh, quite a, a prestigious establishment, and... Uh, just to say that you work there is, is quite an honor, I bet. Yeah. It's difficult because we keep coming kind of really high up in this kind of most difficult companies to get into in the world. I think number two at the moment. Um, but I don't think we think of ourselves that way. I think it's more about being selective. It's not about um, difficult to get in. It's about we want to work with the people we want to work with. Right. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty prestigious. It's pretty... Uh, it's pretty good fun, and I get to work with a lot of uh, very interesting people, so yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty exciting, but yeah. So tell us about this project and this collaboration. So um, I guess I started working uh, with, or ThoughtWorks started working with Compeller Market a few years ago, and uh, really it's been a kind of three-year journey since, so uh, I've been working with Matt for about three years. Um, I've been there for the last year. I describe myself... Uh, that, uh, that introduction was fantastic. Uh, that's, that's the bio normally the conferences get. Um, really, I think of myself more as a kind of coding architect. So I spend my time sort of split between uh, writing code uh, on projects and then kind of consulting for, I guess, you know, kind of more high-level kind of architectural consulting. So that's kind of what I do. We started, I guess, uh, I, I worked with Compare the Market three years ago. And for the last sort of year or so, I've been embedded on uh, in one of the product teams uh, compare the market sort of developing a um, I'm gonna I should uh, point out at this point that I'm not just a .NET developer um, oh that's oh. Quite, <laughs> yeah. quite an omission there are uh, other lines hang on I thought, so how come how come they get all the kind of woo and I get that? <laughs> yeah no that's perfectly fine <laughs> we know we live in a heterogeneous world yeah yeah so uh in, in that heterogeneous world um I, I spent a lot of time in, in java as well so as well as .NET. so yeah um but i've been yeah cutting pretty much the last sort of uh year or so in uh in c sharp with uh with, with matt and and the rest of the team at compare the market um it's uh it's a really exciting place we've been as i say it's it's .NET, so uh so what does compare the market do well maybe i can ask matt to describe what yeah. compare the market do well, uh, Compare the Market is a, a price comparison website. So we uh, compare insurance prices for uh, motor insurance, home insurance, life insurance, and the like. Um, and we're probably most well known for our affiliation with uh, a certain Meerkat or set of Meerkats. So. You got Meerkat issues? Too many. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. You know what they say about Meerkats, right? What do they say about New York? Yeah, yeah the argument fell back in. Uh, maybe added that one out. <laughs> <laughs> they don't say anything about New York. <laughs> no, right. Yeah. <laughs> they do a lot of that. But it's been it's been a really interesting journey because uh, we've we've gone on I guess a three year journey um, from a kind of I guess what you might describe as a kind of typical monolithic um, I guess uh, architecture into, into architecture into a sort of 
uh, a bit more of a horizontally scalable um, yeah. approach. Well, when I think about a website like that, my first the first word I think of is integration. You know, obviously, if you're comparing, then you're getting data from a lot of disparate sources. Whether you're whether you're going and stealing it, or or you have contracts uh, to backend systems that are not all the same, yep. you have an integration problem. Yeah, there's a lot of integration. Right? Yeah, it's all contractually based as well. Yeah, so. I'm sure it is. That's a joke. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, what's wrong with interior architecture? We we built a lot of software that way. What, yeah. what didn't it well, do for you? It's fine until you get to the point where you need to scale past you know, getting bigger and bigger boxes and you want to be able to um, partition things across many uh, sort of storage repositories. So, uh, are you a I mean, Is it a cloud-based thing or are you managing your own data? Uh, well, currently it's not, but we are, we are looking at clouds. Um, because you've had enough. Well, no, it's more... Um, <laughs> I mean, back to your, your slides earlier. There, mm -hmm. there is a lot of um, a lot of speed to be gained from being able to operate in the cloud. Well, mostly about. I mean, I don't consider cloud terribly fast, but it scales out really well. Yeah. yeah. As long as you've got the application that can deal with that. Sure. Yeah. That but it's, yeah. Sorry to interrupt, Matt. It comes back to um, you mentioned Netflix earlier. We had people. I don't know. Presumably in the room, use use Netflix or LoveFilm or one of those other options. And it comes back to kind of. Netflix running on Amazon, right? right? Something incredibly exciting for me happened in 2005, where effectively there's an organization called Amazon that couldn't run on a monolithic end-tier architecture anymore. Right. right? Couldn't scale further. This is public record. Um, and the, they had no option but to, but to scale differently. And they scaled differently by moving towards a service-oriented architecture. Um, and that, that service-oriented architecture with a, a set of you know, individual teams owning services, I think at one point the homepage for Amazon is like 300 services or something crazy, um, related services, uh, all owned by kind of product-based teams, talking about DevOps, they owned, they owned not only the, the code they were writing, but also the infrastructure they're deploying onto, mm -hmm. right? And from that came, well, AWS. Yeah. And, you know, eight years later, what we have is Netflix, which is, you know, pioneering in this space, I think Adrian Cockroft uh, talks about fine-grained service-oriented architecture, right? right? Which is their... Uh, which is their term for what they're doing based on the Amazon platform. And it's, it's a very similar, I think, journey that a lot of organizations are starting to go on. A lot of companies are starting to look at the kind of basic end tier. Uh, we, we, we internally, we're not sure whether to call it the wormhole architecture. Wormhole uh, architecture. Yeah, yeah, where you sort of, you know, you get like stuff that should be running in one process and go yeah. and sort of split it over two, right? And, right. Or, or maybe concertina, so that kind of concertina architecture where you have... Yeah, some data services, which is a very Chinese, traditional way of doing Chinese it. Chinese finger. Yeah, exactly. You can't get them out, right? <laughs> so, yeah, exactly that. And um, I remember when SOA was sort of new in the space, and it was one of those Zen concepts. Like, if, uh -huh. if you actually try and explain uh, SOA, you don't understand it. Right. You just have to live within it. There no, and no explanation was adequate. There is no spoon, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's sort of where it got to. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think... Ah. For, <laughs> For a long time, um, I, I, th I think for a long time we struggled with this. We struggled yeah. as an industry with this is great idea that we can componentize and we can deploy different services and they can all talk to one another. We'll reuse at the service level and the business process level. It was never a reality. You know, actually, mm -hmm. all it ended up being is a, is a mechanism for um, cough 
big vendors to to sell us free, you know, three million pound ESBs effectively. Yeah, it was a new buzzword you could yeah. stick on top of a product that nobody could really understand, but required lots of consulting to make it run, and made them lots and lots of money. Sure. Okay, your your SOA. What uh, what what were the initial challenges that you had to overcome? Um, well, we we moved from a, a sort of relational database storage engine um, and into architecture to a, uh, an event source, event driven architecture, uh, which enabled us to partition things much more at much more sort of finely grained level. Um, so. So describe how a relational versus an event-driven, yeah, so just describe that a little bit. Uh, okay, so with a relational database, most uh, there's quite a lot of your uh, sort of business invariance uh, encoded within the schema and the uh, relations between the tables sure. within your, your database. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, in an event-sourced approach, you're basically just storing state change. So I see. Uh, all the business invariants are dealt with at the code level within your domain. I see. So somebody asks for a top-level record, you get notified, then it's up to you to go get the sub-records, if you will, yeah, somehow. It, it allows for a much sort of um, finer control over your, uh, your sort of... Um, Partitioning and scalability. So, yeah, and I guess both on this kind of so you can talk about the technical concerns, right? Which is in this kind of model, you you move towards more of a um, separate processes for say read and write, so yeah. you can mm -hmm. scale read and write separately and different you know horizontally, um, but also in terms of the businesses. I mean, right? I think we're often very fond of talking about technology. Brilliant, we're a technologist, fantastic. Actually, it comes down to it comes down to talking about what I what we heard earlier, which is about actually if you're a technology if you're if you're a company where technology is the business, what you're trying to solve with those things are business problems. You're not trying to solve technology problems. Yeah. You know, we aren't academics, right? We, mm -hmm. we operate in a world where we're where, where, where we're trying to solve real business problems. And what this kind of event sourcing kind of model gives you is a really nice uh, opportunity to talk with the business. You can chat with the business about real things that are happening in their domain and actually uh, use that uh, and model that in, 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 so in your technology. Essentially, so, you're yeah. deconstructing a query, you know, whereas you know, in a relational model, you, you get a query and you sort of wait for that whole thing to come back. You're, you're taking hold of that whole process, aren't you, Then, So, yeah, it, event sourcing works really well for the right side in terms of for the right side. Store, storing uh, state change. Yeah. Uh, in terms of performing queries over that, it's quite. Yeah, it, storing a, a history of events is not the best way to be able to answer a, a right, query. Right. Sure. So um, that's where applying things like um, CQRS or command query okay, yeah. responsibility segregation come right. in. So you um, you basically project those events into a uh, denormalized form. Which which will answer the queries that you commonly right. commonly have. So uh, you then you benefit from the fact that you don't need to perform joins over twenty tables right. and or, or two hundred tables in right. order to be able to answer a query. So this was your first challenge was moving from that relational model to the event driven model, really. Uh, yeah, combined with a few others. But yeah. <laughs>
So was that the major challenge, though? Then, uh, well, I mean, we, we went through a uh, organizational change as well. So, oh. um, you know, as a business, we've grown uh, massively year on year. So, yeah. um, where we were just an amorphous uh, development capability, uh, you know, forming sort of product teams for as long as the uh, the project lasted. Yeah. Uh, we've now formed uh, long-lived product-based teams formed around the commercial line, so yeah. um, that works really well as well. So very much talking to the, the points earlier, which um, I appreciate that listeners probably don't uh, won't be seeing those slides. Sure. So maybe I'll kind of uh, recap, you know, or, or, or at least briefly. Um, so you know, talking towards the integration of of developer and operations, right? You know, move, moving towards more of the Amazon model of the kind of you know, and I, I think this is probably a model that. Um, a lot of organizations are going to have to move, move towards at some point um, is the you build it, you run it kind of approach. Right. You know, it's not the, um, we, we hand this, 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 this um, artifact over um, to, to, to some operations team who's basically, you know, I, I had a brilliant description. I think it was either Jez Humble or Sam Newman, who two colleagues of mine, who talk about, you know, the fundamental difference between operations and, and, uh, and, and development is, you know, operations are optimized to be risk averse and you know for, for for lack of change, right? Stability, whereas development is optimized for change, right? Yeah. And trying to join those two together is, is uh, very The operations very mantra is change is good, you go first. Yeah. <laughs> exactly that. Yeah. You know, but and it makes sense that they they're in those two two sides of things. But it's interesting how those teams are coming together because they're each picking up each other's skills. Yeah. Operations has changed, has become much more a configuration and tool centric thing. It's not guys in white lab coats anymore. And I don't know any IT guy who can really make it these days. If you can't do a little coding, you know, tools like Microsoft's PowerShell and mm-hmm. heck, working in Puppet or any of those sorts of environments, yep. there's code behind all of that oh, yeah. that's running infrastructure for you. So the two groups have been running into each other for a while anyway. So at the time that you're moving from one model to another, you obviously have to be up and running, right? Yep. So that, and you're growing at the same time. And so, you know, how did that happen? How does that work? Do you, did you essentially duplicate and replicate your environment? Um, well, yeah, I mean, we, we essentially built the capability to uh, A-B test these things next right. to each other. So, um, yeah, to do, do that transition with the minimal risk, essentially. Yeah. So you had to build a whole new, a whole new set? Um, um, yeah, I mean, oh, building a multivariate testing framework is yeah. not—it's not too complicated compared to the, the, the core sort of business domain. Right. But, uh, sure, yeah. fun, fun problem. So to yeah, solve. And, and that's where the architecture guidance comes in very handy, I suppose, because you know you, that's that's tricky waters. Keep everything running and at the same time uh, move forward. Well, that's I guess um, I guess. Some more information. Yeah, I, I mentioned with the journey started like three, three years ago, I guess now. Um, initially, that was very much a kind of high level you know, thing. This is, you know, this is not, uh, this is something I fundamentally believe in is this idea of evolutionary architecture over big upfront design, right? right. We do mm-hmm. just enough upfront design to know where we're, where we're going, right. synchronize on the direction, not on the path. And then within, I guess, uh, the, those boundaries, then you need to allow architecture to evolve, you know, or design to evolve within within boundaries, within bounded contexts, actually, in this case. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of interesting, because this, you know, the idea of becoming evolutionary architecture, where you kind of des- de- uh, you know, decide on a town plan, you know, you decide on um, 
very much the kind of uh, the sort of more uh, the macro uh, level description of business capabilities and then how business capabilities are going to communicate with one another. Right. And then within that, you know, I guess I think Martin Fowler talks about, you know, what is architecture? Architect architecture is the stuff that's difficult to change after it's done, right? Or right. after you've sort of thought about it. Well, so the commitments you need to make. Yeah, but one know. would argue that, you know, end here, that the commitment to a relational database is something very difficult to change. You're, you build a, a lot of software to organize that information to be stored in that data store. Yeah. Which seems to be the weak spot in scaling, you know, in, in large-scale infrastructure every time. Yeah. Especially if you end up integrating other systems into the same database right. as opposed to integrating at a layer above, uh, you know, a service level. We went to all this work to make sure that we stored each piece of data once. And now everybody needs that same piece of data, and it's a problem. Mm. Storage cheaper now, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, so we started making copies. Yeah. Yeah. Optimize for the, the job in hand, yeah. Well, that's okay, right, you know? I, I mean, guess, but yeah. the question is, is there a better organization? When you talk about the service approach, sure. it's about, okay, let's not just make copies and bandage the problem of that centralization. Let's distribute it a different way. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, no one's talking about things like... Um, having random copies of, of user data all over the place. I've been to many organizations where you actually see that as a huge problem. You, mm -hmm. look, at, you look at, you know, from the kind of system estate, and they'll have 15 databases. I was even at one where they had a database that was called the middleware database. And that's no. pretty awesome, right? Uh, <laughs> Very meta. Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. We, we don't have an enterprise service bus now, but we have a middleware database. Yeah. Um, and, and we you have a data up, store database, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's this kind of stovepipe idea, right, where you end up with lots and lots of different stovepipes with lots and lots of different, of the same data, but, you, but um, separated out everywhere. Um, I think what we're, you know, the promise of SOA was always that you'd end up with Systems of record, right? You know, you end up with one place to go for the master copy of your data. You might right. want to go somewhere else. You might want to um, have copies of that data with time to lives and things on it. Right. But, you know, you have a system of record with a single source of truth. Right. For one, one set of services for finding information about customers. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And it, it's a really interesting, um, I think you kind of set that up very nicely when you sort of said, uh, you know, the relational model, um, you know, we found it difficult to scale. I think that's, is it MP hard? I'm not sure, but certainly most clustered um, data, relational database products are, are quite difficult once you get past a certain size. Yeah. It's why most of the big organized, big, you know, uh, I guess the big online organizations, the Twitters, the Amazons, the Facebooks have built their own storage. It's why mm -hmm. Google have built their own storage. Um, and it's why probably we've now, we're now living in a world where actually no SQL is pretty much the norm for most organizations, mm -hmm. I think. Um, I don't know if that's true for people in the room. Um, it's normalized. Yeah. <laughs> 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 he got there. Hey. hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Oh, it must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to call the Get a Dram service so I can get drunk. <laughs> can we have another round of monkey shoulder over here, please? We're drinking monkey shoulder tonight. We're serious. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, they are too. No, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft complete collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Hey, did you know that the NDC people have authorized us to give away two 
tickets to NDC London Ooh. on .NET Rocks. Nice. We're going to do that on an upcoming show. So, good time to join the fan club, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But before I tell you who won today's DevCraft Complete Collection, i got to tell you that Telerix Kendo UI is everything you need to build HTML5 and JavaScript sites and mobile apps. With server-side wrappers for ASP.NET MVC, you'll be able to produce awesome HTML5 apps powered by Kendo UI without being forced to write that pesky JavaScript. <laughs> Simply program on the server, and the Kendo UI wrappers will handle the HTML and JavaScript. You will have fun, and your boss will be amazed. Visit the official Kendo UI website at kendoui.com slash D-O-T-N-E-T to find out more about Kendo UI and download the free 30-day trial with full support. Don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks. Absolutely. So who's our winner, buddy? Today's winner is Jason Myers. Congratulations, Jason. Jason, if you're driving to work right now, I'm sorry about having to change your pants. <laughs> no golf clap today. No golf clap. We're in Manchester. Full round of applause. That's right. We're also giving away Ben a while, my new CD. It's good stuff. If you, uh, well, never mind. We'll talk more about that later. <laughs> it's available at carlfranklin.com. And today's winner is Bill Allen from Allensoft. Congratulations, Bill. <laughs> If you don't know about the fan club, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members. Every, uh, every show we give away stuff, and every December we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member. That's right. Just ask Rod Corbett. He won last year in December, and we asked him what he wanted, and he wanted a custom-built Windows Touch and Gesture development environment. Right. So we got a couple of 24-inch screens, one of them Touch. Uh, connect for Windows, and one month, when you spend five grand on a computer, you get a heck of a computer. Yeah. And he's been pretty happy with it. Yeah. And we got it locally built for him near his town with a good warranty on it because it did break down. Yeah, it did. And the guys came out and serviced it, kept it running for him. Everybody's sick of the story, too. Rob Corbett's the most famous guy from .NET Rocks. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody like, Rob Corbett, Rob Corbett, I want a PC. Well, join the fan club. We like to ask our guests, if you had $5,000, what would you buy? James? Um, wow. <laughs> that's the typical response. Yeah. That's the correct response. I think probably a, an awful lot of Lego Mindstorm. Yeah! That's a good answer. I love it. Yeah, awful lot fun. of Lego Mindstorms. Okay. Uh, and there's so many interesting robotics kits around there. I mean, Mindstorms yeah. are, are, are a cool one. You, the, uh, the Microsoft Robotics Studio, you can actually sure. pre-design what you want to do with Mindstorms in a simulator and then actually go get the parts and go nuts on it. Although five grand, you'd get a pretty serious robot. Like Mindstorm is small. Well, you know, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna go, you know, Lego Mindstorms, I'm gonna go for something that can basically take on Godzilla, right? Yeah, no, I think you're sort of heading down to. You, you, could, you could build about thirty or forty robots for that. You're gonna build Skynet. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking Pacific Rim here. Yeah, That's yeah. what I'm thinking. Build Godzilla, <laughs> a self-assembling robot warrior. Oh man, have you hey, seen the uh, the Rubik's cube? No, the robot that. That solves the Lego Mindstorm's robot that solves the Rubik's Cube? Yeah, I've awesome. seen that. Yeah, yeah it solves cool. it in a few seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite what? terrifying. <laughs> Matt, you've had a little longer to think about it now. If you had five grand to spend on gadgets, what would you get? Uh, TV, I think. Uh, they, <laughs> the four, you know, I've been looking hard at the 4K resolution screens. Yeah. The new one, 3840 by 2160, baby. 
because I want four 1080p screens mounted together in one screen. To watch absolute crap. Yeah. <laughs> Specific room again, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm with you. They, and they're not cheap. You know, it's four grand for a 31-inch. It's been case. a while since I bought one. So. Yeah, yeah, wow. You, you spent a lot of money on it. <laughs> I'm actually kind of surprised because uh, I, I would have bet anything you would have said a rig for Bitcoin mining. <laughs> but, you know, hey, that's... <laughs> I, think, you know, I feel like Bitcoin's almost run its course at this point, yeah. you know? The front load, because there's, there's so yeah. much computational power being thrown at right now with all that ASIC here that it's, getting, it's just the overhead for getting coins anymore. It's crazy. So well, it also hasn't it proven itself to be uh, suspect, suspect to fraud and... Uh, all sorts of other crap. There have been some incidents. Yeah. Not like money isn't susceptible to yes. fraud. Because money's so reliable. It's reliable, <laughs> yeah. Traceable. Yeah. <laughs> I had this idea that, um, that we know when the singularity has arrived, when we've, we've completely dismantled the moon to fund Bitcoin mining, basically. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's when we've turned the moon into, into a Bitcoin mine. Yeah. Yep. We're just converting everything into energy to do computational yep. points for making... <laughs> Like cryptographic <laughs> money. Yeah. Uh, just a thought. You know. I never knew that was one of the horsemen, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's sort of jump back into the subject at hand here because uh, I, mean, I, felt, I felt like SOA was a really big topic, I don't know, five, six years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of, has it just become now development that we don't talk about it on its own anymore? I mean, everybody builds services these days, really. Isn't, isn't, if you're building services, you're there? Um, for me, probably not. I think there's a bit more thought that goes into it because sure. I think most most people, when they talk about building a service, actually they think about much more of the kind of data service. Right. They don't think so much around the kind of business service, business capabilities, yeah, something solving business problems, which is really what SRA was all, all about. I mean, I think the exciting thing for me is again, maybe recapping something from earlier, was is, is the fact that virtualization, cloud, infrastructures and services happen. That's the thing, declarative provisioning, that's the thing sure. that's making this really exciting because you can now not only build services, you can build lots of services, you can build smaller services and take advantage of lots of different, I guess, axes um, oh, yeah. of things like scaling, you know, deployment agility, all these different things based on the kind of infrastructure automation. I, mean, I thought that, that's what SOA really was all about, was the sort of granularity of service yeah. and having these islands that were sort of independent and autonomous, talking, all talking to each other so that they weren't all dependent and running on the same hardware. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, you look, it's kind of Netflix, right? I mean, we had the slot we, we were talking about Netflix earlier. I mean, I can't remember the exact stats, but they have hundreds and hundreds of, of individual services where they're running. Um, yeah, you know, we heard about the Chaos Monkey earlier. They've got this fantastic thing called yep. the Chaos Gorilla. Have you come across this? We met no. him last night, actually. Dan North. He is the Chaos Monkey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess with the beard, maybe I could be the Chaos Gorilla. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's they have this tool called the Chaos Gorilla, which not only so Chaos Monkey will take out individual services yeah. or individual you know, boxes, um, but of course the the reason they were able to withstand the outage. Um, you know, when basically East Coast or was it West Coast Region 1 or whatever went out. It was yep. because they run multi-region. They run multi-availability zone within Amazon, within, you know, within EC2, within a single region, and then cross-region as well, which is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. And so when one region goes, uh, they 
they, they, they kind of stayed up. Now, the Chaos Gorilla, which is fantastic, that just takes out entire data centers. It doesn't take out boxes. No. It will take down a data center for you. Now, that's pretty cool. That's a big gorilla. Like, that's pretty cool, right? Yeah. But they know they're running multi-AZ, multi-availability zone. They're running multi-region. Well, you almost wonder if that region one outage, what prompted them to start doing that? Because uh-huh. even though they did survive that, yeah. and I think and the interesting part about surviving the region one outage was not that some infrastructure stayed up and some customers were still being supplied, but in fact, pretty much all customers were being supplied. Because the West region systems were, were running West customers. Mm-hmm. East region systems were running East customers. Mm-hmm. West region goes away, and the East not only keeps covering the East, but he starts feeding the West as well. Yeah. I thought that was the most remarkable thing. But it seemed to me, looking at some of the stuff that, that Cockroft wrote about that, it scared them. They, it's like they were surprised they survived it. Right. Yeah, surely. I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> that wasn't supposed to happen. Region 1 was not supposed to go down, much less for a substantial amount of time. Yeah, yeah and it was the entire um, basic infrastructure underneath, I mean, uh, underneath the, this storage, basically, right? It was the... Maybe that's a bit too much. Yeah, it detail. turns out virtualization doesn't work so good when you can't get any of the disks. <laughs> I, I heard this brilliant story of the dangers of virtualization, which I, I, it was, it's called the zombie apocalypse, right? So, which is a fantastic. <laughs> of course it is. Yeah, of course yeah. it is, right? So it's a, an organization that have, uh, uh, that run a lot of their infrastructure on, uh, on Amazon. And they have, um, they came in one morning. But so, one of the things, if you're, if you're automating to the point of just bringing up inv- entire environments, running all your build environments, everything on, on virtualized hardware in the, in the cloud, right? Um, one of the things is, you know, you, 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 you might want to be quite careful about spending as little money doing that as possible. Because whilst you can save money doing this over the kind of, because you can scale sure. up and down and all these things, it also, it also costs some just to have boxes lying around. So, um, this organization who, uh, we work with, they, uh, they, they have a process called the zombie killer, right, which goes through their instances every night and uh, tries to you know, tear down any instances that they're kind of no longer being used, basically. Right. Um, and they came in one morning and they found like some small percentage, let's say for argument's sake, 5% of all of their servers, and they've got like six, 700 of these, had gone away overnight. They're kind of a bit worried about this, as, as you'd expect. Yeah. Um, they came in the next day. I mean, 5% is still 30 servers yeah. when you have 600. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's quite a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. So, that, so then they came in the next day and they'd lost like 95%. Right? Ouch. Of everything, including their build servers, including everything, right? It's pretty much they had 5% left of the, wow. of the 600 server estate. Um, and they found basically a bug. They hit a bug in one of the Ruby APIs that they were using where the box that was running the zombie uh, killer uh, box that was running, killing zombie processes, was right. running on Amazon itself. So what it was doing, it was it was going off and getting a list of all these zombies to kill, and the, the bug was it would give it a list of all of the instances right. rather than just the zombies, and it would walk down, walk down the list. And the first night, it walked down the list, and five percent through found itself and terminated itself. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and I killed me. <laughs> and then, uh, and then the, the next night, it was it came up at the bottom of the list. Right. And terminated everything until it hit itself, and then uh, and then terminated itself and died. Yeah, and they That's called really it, of course, the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, zombie but apocalypse. of course you, get, you can fool yourself with thinking the day the five percent was shut down. Yeah, ah, you know, it was be, it was a little bit of an aggressive algorithm, you know. It, it was, it, it, but you know, that's good. It found thirty things that didn't need to be there. Yeah. So, Matt, I'd like to hear some stories about things that you learned uh, working on this project. Um, 
Yeah, because obviously you guys worked a lot together, and you know there there must have been a lot of things, sort of aha moments that happened, uh, you know, during this. Um, well, I think uh, we we've learned not to branch. Okay. Ever. Ever. Unless you're playing so a we, drinking we, game. We, we, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, we, quite fun actually. <laughs> yeah, only to get drunk. Right. Yeah. Uh, no, we we uh, we branch by abstraction as opposed to by uh, using source control as like a, a poor substitute for right. for the design of your, of your code. So we okay. feature switch stuff out that's not meant for public eyes, um, and that's that's meant that stuff that you develop. You build it in dev, the same artifact goes all the way up to production, and you can get increasing levels of confidence as, as it goes through. So you just found that having all these branches was just too much to yeah, manage? Uh, yeah, I mean, we used, to do all sort, we used to do all sorts of crazy things, like cherry pick uh, at various levels, depending on... Uh, it was sort of tied to business process, so it was like, oh, this contract's been signed, let's, let's get that bit in, and it, it was just horrendous. Nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, using branches as uh, configuration environments for potential SLA agreements. And if it doesn't happen, roll it back. Yeah. And if it does happen, integrate it in. Yeah. And then you're, and you're so sales is really effective. You just shred your, 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 uh, your uh, source code environment. Like if sales was kicking it, and now you've got three or four hundred of those, what could go wrong? <laughs> so did you go so far as to say no branching? Yep. Really? Yep. Wow. If you can't work on trunk, you can't work. Yep. That's... That, but that's tough. It, it is, but then we also do everything test first as well. So right, okay. Do you find? Works, so. I mean, is it basically forcing developers to build their features differently? That they they have everything must be integratable all of the time, whether it's visible or not. Yep. Which forces them to think about what they're developing as opposed to just you know, knocking something up and then it getting integrated and and causing something else to break over here. Yeah, so. I mean, no branch sounds threatening. Integrate first. Which is the same thing, really. Like, integrate early and often, all of the time. Uh, well, I mean, in a sense, your, your, your uncommitted changes are your branch. Right. And that's as far as it goes. Yeah. Yeah, very good. And so, continuous integration, continuous deployment? Yep. Yeah. Yep, so um, we use a, a tool to get, uh, get check-in. Get check yep. Uh, we'll get commit basically causes a, a build, all the tests run, it's green, it's moved up, or a QA can then pull that into their environment to test. Do you have a crazy broke the build alarm system? What do you have? We have several. So, <laughs> depend, depend on the product team, it's either a, a, a sort of audible alert, or it's a visual thing, or it's a uh, one of those Philips Hue lights that sort of just does yeah. some crazy... Light show. Any kind of shame and humiliation. Uh, we have a rich hickey wig, if that's any help. <laughs> a what? Do you know rich hickey? A rich hickey wig? Yeah, yeah. you know rich hickey from uh, Rogue oh, Closure. Yeah. yeah, rich hickey? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, relevance yeah, yeah. guy. He's awesome, dude. And yeah, we have a kind of comedy, uh, <laughs> really big wig. It's not really a rich hickey wig. It's known as the rich I hickey wig. I got it. Wig. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, you, and you wear that if you break the bill? On the team I'm currently working on. Oh, yeah, okay. we do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've had the build break. You wrote the build with Teddy Bear, and it sits on your desk till the next guy breaks the build, which eventually creates bad incentives for others. Well, because they want the Teddy Bear. No, they want the Teddy Bear to go away. <laughs> I want the Teddy Bear to go away, so I'm going to find a way to make you break the build. <laughs> you have to be careful what you measure. I'm sure yes, Dan, Dan North will What incentives you create. <laughs> exactly. 
there's only so much chaos we want to tolerate. But, uh, I mean, the, the automation carries all the way through into production as well. So yeah. uh, we automate the, the, the release to production. So we don't hand off to an ops team. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's one of the things with building more finely grained services that I think is important, is, is the ability to be able to deploy your changes in a repeatable and reliable way so yeah. that uh, you're, you're not sort of relying on, on manual processes, which... Yeah, can never go wrong. Sure, right. Um, you know, to, to deploy each individual aspect of what, what you're trying to get get released. Well, I guess the more fine-grained those services are, the smaller chunk of code you've changed and pushed into production. So the less chance it's going to go wrong. Yeah, the, well, I've always had a sense that the longer we go, the higher the risk. Absolutely. Well, it's, I mean, um, there was a fantastic uh, uh, shout-out for the Phoenix Project earlier. Right? Yeah. And that's... One, one of my favorite books. Wonderful, wonderful book. And it, that's one of the key learnings for me from that, you know, is if you're looking at constraints in your system, and it's all about theory of constraints, really. It's related to the Eli Goldratt goal, you know, that book. And, um, if you're looking for constraints in your system, um, if your constraint is deployment and you're backing up inventory behind it, you yeah. know, it's like you've got this big machine that's sitting there idle, not doing anything, and you're just backing stuff up. And your customers at the other end, <clears throat> who've ordered all this cool stuff off you, aren't getting any of it, yeah. right? And that sucks. You've just got all this stuff sit, sitting around. <laughs> it's not making you money, you know? Well, and again, it comes down to visibility, right? The, most, peop- most environments I've seen, there's no way to tell that the build, that, that there's more than one build sitting there waiting to be deployed. Nobody's really scrutinizing that there literally is a backlog piling up there. <laughs> but you, you guys haven't even gotten to the previous version. We have another one ready. So Matt, before James came along, you know, were you guys doing using agile practices and all that? What, when did um, you start this whole you know formal process? Do you mind if I jump in here? And say, I, so I had, had I had like an eighteen month gap. So I was oh, okay. there like three years ago, and then I've been there for about ten months or something. Oh, okay. So I, I'm not. I, I wouldn't want to take credit for the journey that Matt and oh, his all right, team. Oh, sure, yeah, on. good. Right, Thanks so, for clarifying. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think. The, the commitment to make the change mm-hmm. from a sort of, uh, you know, just a, this amorphous massive development ad hoc resource, developer experience, yeah, yeah. Um, to uh, sort of long-lived product teams with, you know, uh, visible right. sort of workflow, you know, Kanban sort of boards and the like, uh, was the top level of the organization bought into that process. And, and I think that, that's what's made it successful. So How long ago was that? Um, well, it's getting on for two, two years. Two so not years, lo- not long ago. Yeah. And how many developers on the team? Uh, well, now there's about eighty-five, ninety. And how many were there? Twenty. Really? Yeah. So those it's a long way in two so years. Let's talk about those twenty. How what, was it hard for them to make that transition, or were they all in? Um, no, there was, there was definitely uh, yeah, I mean. Agile is good for the developer, right? Sure. You know, it yeah. empowers the developer to yeah. basically be able to affect the change that they are making on, on the system that they're working on. So yeah. uh, the majority of developers bought into it. Um, there were some that it wasn't for them. You know, they, they preferred the, sort of the old way of working, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a natural selection. A bit like sure, that. yeah, natural selection, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get that, sure. Yeah. Natural sure selection out the door. 
Well, we all know the off my lawn people. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. You can change your organization or you can change your organization. That's right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> do you guys have any questions? Anybody? I can't see, really. So, shout. Yo! If you got a question. Nope. Did you have any problems? Or no problems. Was it difficult to get off by in? So, you went from a monolithic architecture to one where you got them. So, how many for microservices? Mm-hmm. Was it difficult to get off by in to that much more configuration, that much more? Question is, was it difficult for ops to buy in going from monolithic to microservices? So, um, we have a slightly different arrangement to what was talked about earlier, where um, quite a lot of organizations build software and then hand it over to ops to deploy and operate. Right. We um, have always, I suppose, really operated in a way that we own the deployment um, and ops just look after the the network infrastructure and the, and the tin that it runs on. So, uh, so in some ways, so we, your, we your IT team is a cloud team. Pretty much, yeah. And, and if you built it, you run it. Yeah. Well, so that's the, I mean, we call that no ops too, right? It's a very, the very startup style model where if I'm the guy who wrote it and run it, then I can argue with myself all I want about how much I suck. You know. <laughs> <laughs> He's got away with words. I've never heard that. That's fantastic. <laughs> so yeah, but I, I like you know that's we, we need it really small teams. That's what ends up happening, yeah. right? Is that yeah, you own the whole thing. So you know the debate's pretty short, right? But to take it to a larger organization and keep doing that because you do have you do need a dedicated a dedicated networking guy is incredibly valuable, Absolutely. and he just not going to do your instrumentation and, and monitoring. That's not his job. Couple more questions. Anyone? Yeah, yeah, sir. At which point do you switch to microservices? Say you've got small teams. You know, when's the point to change from your big MVC project with lots of areas to microservices? Let me repeat the question. Yeah. Say you have a small team. When? At what point do you switch? I guess he's asking for advice. Now. Now. <laughs> now. Time is now. I'm, I'm, do you mind if I clarify that? Sure. <laughs> um, so. Uh, I would I would argue that there should be probably reasons to do it. So some reasons such as you can't get stuff done because your change cycles are tied together for multiple products in the same piece of you know in the same big piece of software, or um, you can't scale out anymore because you need to just keep buying bigger boxes and you want to move from a single session state based kind of architecture or you anticipate, horizontal or you anticipate that scale or you anticipate that yeah, yeah exactly um, but you know I don't, I don't think it you know for me it's, I it's not as simple as, as saying right silver bullet yeah. this is you know we're going to hit everything with this hammer you can also um, get into a trap where services becomes a monolith as well you know if you have a customer services rec record that many different apps are depending on that sort of critical service that one gets a lot of inertia around it yeah it's sure. very hard to modify central services of record yeah you just have but, to I break mean, them up if you've got your MVC app and you've got all you've got different controllers and different routes and things like that so you can start to partition it now in, in preparation for when you start to hit these issues that you can then break them out into different processes and then you can scale them independently so yeah I think I've been a bit flippant when I said now, no. but what I mean is, is that you should you should be designing for that eventuality anyway, uh, and then you, you know, 
as you want to deploy things independently, there is a cost to that, and it's got to be worth paying. So. Okay, we had another question in front here, yeah. How do you keep the team, the like 85 people, all moving in the same direction, in the same vision? You're obviously split into smaller teams. Do you find that some are fighting against each of the teams and going out of the direction, but how do you keep the whole thing going in one direction? How do you keep the team unified? How do you hurt them cats? Uh, yeah. Uh, so we have uh, sort of... Uh, an 85 people stand up everyone. No, no, we don't. <laughs> what we do have is we have like a, a tech lead forum, so all, all the tech leads from all the teams get together and, and sort of basically shoot the breeze and, yeah. and sort of decide what... Uh, Would you call it a stand-up stand-up? Well, it's more of a sit-down, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> they are tech leads, they can't stand-up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, nice cup of tea. But then we try and identify things that are common problems and, and, mm -hmm. and try and uh, resolve those. Yeah, but they're... they're Who's the visionary here? Who really drives this, that there is a direction that everybody's going in? Does it come from senior management, or does it come from sort of some inspirational middles? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, we're trying to adopt a sort of uh, servant leadership type uh, organization. So, sure. um, yeah, the, anybody can have a good idea. Yep. And, and so, uh, yeah, we don't want it to be it only works if it comes from up high. Um, it's all everything's evaluated on its merit, essentially. Yeah. Cool. All right. But it but and nicely dodged. Yeah. yeah. But it also gives <laughs> this idea that if we're all pushing on the idea of how do we get better, then you end up with a shared vision because you helped build it in the first place. Yeah. So it's all about having a common culture, I think, and understanding the common the, cause. Yeah. The, the direction that the company's going in, which obviously comes from the yeah the executive management. One more question. Anyone? What did you use for storage behind these servers? What do you use for storage behind these servers? Currently? Or, uh, so we're currently using uh, MongoDB as our MongoDB, uh, huh? persistence engine. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, guys, it's been, what? Did you have something? No? No, no, sorry. Well, I guess I was going to, maybe just at the end. Um, this is one of the interesting things is that whilst we move from, you know, there's this relational model move to this kind of using Mongo for a lot of um, storage uh, for a lot of the services. Um, the cool thing about the event source piece is that actually we can project all of this stuff into whatever model we want, right? So, um, so whilst you know we've there's you know there might be in your organisation an enterprise data warehouse which is using a star schema and yada yada, that doesn't stop you from using something else. Sure. sure. Um, yeah encapsulated within a service boundary. Right. So. right, absolutely. All right, guys, give it up for James and Matt. Great guests, huh? We <laughs> learned a lot. We'll see you next time on Dot Net Rocks! Thanks for listening. And remember... Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. 
.NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got to transmit a band.